0: I have with me a guest today who is so fascinating that he's the first guest I've ever had back for a second interview. Lance LaRusso, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. The reason I wanted to have you back um, is a couple. You are one of the nation's experts on law enforcement, use of force, and you are a cop and a trainer and a lawyer, and you're an author of a couple of books that are so important, not just to law enforcement, but to the supporters of law enforcement and people who really want to understand uh, use of force. So let's start by talking about the books.
1: Sure. So uh, I've written uh, seven, eight books now, and I have a couple that are in progress. And the profits from the nonprofit books go to support law enforcement. So, uh, per your request, here is one of them Blue News. And I wrote Blue News a couple of years ago to talk about the intersection of media and law enforcement. And the books are available on our website, lancelarussobooks.com, and also on Amazon. And I wrote the book to kind of give people a a roadmap into how to talk to the media and also for the media to understand exactly what's going on inside of a law enforcement agency when there's a critical incident.
0: Let me talk about that for a second, because I think this is one of the biggest problems we have in law enforcement is our law enforcement leadership very often doesn't communicate well with the media and vice versa, right? Well, yeah. And
1: the the problem is that a lot of them have not been taught how. I I wrote Blue News basically because I I really got tired of people looking like deer in the headlights. I've done over 700 media interviews. I've represented, uh, I think now, over 150 officers involved in officer-involved shootings. So I've seen agencies in turmoil. I've gone to agencies that have never had an officer-involved shooting in their entire um, tenure of their command staff, their chief, their training unit. Nobody's ever dealt with one before. So they're looking to me to say, what should we put out? And then a lot of times they haven't done the background work to understand the media in their local area because they're all different. Who should we contact? How do we get information out? Who are your stakeholders in your community? Your pastors, your your youth leaders, the people who are movers and shakers in your community, your business leaders to build that coalition. So when something does happen, they have a voice and they're not shut out.
0: Now that leads me to, to your other book, Um, when cops kill because you know you just said that it's a rarity on a lot of agencies when they have an officer involved shooting and yet I think most folks who are watching legacy media or looking at social media it seems like American law enforcement's just killing people right and left every day right
1: you know, I love the, uh, the man on the street, of course, I kind of love when uh, Jack Benny and, and people of his uh, era used to do it because it was funnier, but now it's just scary. I mean, they, they stop people on the street and ask them questions, and the one that sticks in my mind was asking someone, uh, how many people of color law enforcement shoot and kill every day? And it, they said it was thousands. And I'm just sitting here, I don't know anybody who's ever said that in the media, but it's just amazing the, uh, the rhetoric that's out there. So all the profits from these books go to law enforcement charities, we're up to about 36, $37,000 we've donated now. And the purpose of One Cops Kill was to explain to people that I know this is gonna shock you, we'll have some counseling available for your, for your viewer, viewers here, but it's not like it is in the movies or on television. I know that's just a heartbreaker for people, Officers do not shoot somebody on one page of a novel and then go back to work on the next. There's incredible investigation. Sometimes officers are sidelined for six months. Sometimes the officers, even if they're not visibly injured, suffer from that use of force and the stressful situation they're in for the rest of their lives. And in When Cops Kill, I interviewed officers who'd been involved in shootings. One officer who shot someone, completely justified, morally, legally, everything. And 15 years later, he said his goal was to go 24 hours without thinking about the man he killed, and he hadn't done it yet.
0: Lance, why do you think that police use of force, which has always been a kind of a controversial topic, why are we at the point we're at here in 2022, where it almost seems like no uh, law enforcement-involved shooting is justified by communities or by the media? How did we get here?
1: Well, let's start out with one thing. When a government agent, a law enforcement officer, uses force of any type or takes a life, it is appropriate to scrutinize their actions. The courts do it. District attorneys do it. There's a civil investigation. The agency does it from a criminal perspective and also from an administrative perspective. The Garrity decision from the, the 60s, said that a law enforcement agency can force someone to answer questions even though it can't be used in court because it's more important to find out, did we hire the right person? Did we train them properly? Did we equip them properly? It's more important to find that out than it is to prosecute that person. So the scrutiny is not a problem. The problem is a disconnect between what the law is, the reality of officer-involved shootings, the speed of human encounters and human performance as opposed to what people see on TV. Now, I think what's really gummed up the works is this. The medium you and I are talking in, the fact that I can show my hands and move and people can see my expressions, that video medium has been used since pretty prolifically since the 50s. People have gotten used to seeing things and interpreting what they saw and believing when they saw something on the news, believing what the Reality was that was distorted by a television show or a movie, and then moving into reality television. The problem is, we are now taking video. We've been doing it for a while, but now we're taking body cameras and dash cameras and surveillance video and portraying what happened. And people are presuming that that's what the officer saw, that's what the officer perceived. And I add on top of that, a gross misunderstanding or ignorance of what the laws of the use of force are and you have completely justified officer-involved shootings being condemned by the public and unfortunately by some prosecutors who just don't understand the law.
0: And that's incredibly frustrating, I know, for American law enforcement, which is leading us to a point where We are uh, a lot of areas are desperate for police officers, people are leaving the profession, we're not getting qualified applicants, Uh, you know we're, we're at an incredibly frustrating time in this country and without American law enforcement, people are kind of left to fend for themselves aren't they.
1: Well, we're, we're seeing that happen. I just read an article over the weekend that uh, the state of Connecticut is 800 officers short. Well, what happened there recently? Aside from everything else, we had some reform legislation, and it's not, and you hit the nail on the head, it's not just the recruiting, it's not just the new folks, but now we're seeing the elders of the profession leaving. The people with 20 years that were expected to stay till 30 are leaving at 22, The people with 25 years are offered positions in command staff, chief positions, um, running for sheriff and saying, I'm tapping out, I'm done. Any profession that starts to lose its elders is in trouble.
0: Absolutely, and and you're trying to affect this as much as you can. And one of the ways you're doing that is with the Blue Line Institute. Let's talk about that.
1: Sure, so the Blue Line Institute is a think tank that we started uh, this past year for law enforcement officers and their attorneys. It's designed to present cutting edge research, information, case law, about how to defend officers in shootings and use of force cases and just in the media. How do you fight back about the negative perceptions? How do you get people to slow down? And and if people say slow their role in what they're doing. So as I've said, after an officer-involved shooting, you can have two options. You can have quick answers, or you can have a thorough investigation, but you can't have both. And the other thing that I've said to, to several folks an officer involved shooting is different people say well why should that be different well it is different it's not a who done it it's a why done it no murder has ever happened where an officer gets there and the person says i shot here's my gun take pictures of me you can test my gun i'll cooperate with you what do you want to know it's different. The question is, why did the officer use force? And on top of that, we wanted to address the fact that in the middle of this investigation, you have people tugging at strings, a lot of them are fundraising, tugging at strings and essentially excusing abject criminality of the person who escalated. We talk about, about de-escalation. These are people with criminal tendencies who are escalating a situation such that the officer had to use force. How do we deal with that when you're defending officers? How do agencies deal with that when they're stuck in that soup because one of their officers was forced to use deadly force?
0: Now, Lance, you're involved in the Fraternal Order of Police, which is, um, you know, it's a police association slash police union, depending on what state you're in. Um, And there's a lot of talk when we we talk about police use of force, um, uh, there's a lot of talk, especially politically, On abolishing police unions, things like that. Why do officers need a a police union? Why do they need somebody to defend them if what they're doing is right?
1: Officers need due process. And what's really interesting, when I say those words, officers need due process, I say that to you, you nod your head, your listeners nod their heads. You would be shocked at the people that want to take due process away from officers just because they wore a badge. I have actually heard prosecutors say, that the Garrity decision should be abolished because if an officer is involved in a shooting, they should be required to answer questions to criminal investigators. So sitting in this chair, I got a phone call from a reporter. It's a national news organization I've known for a long time and said, look, I just interviewed a prosecutor and they said we'd have to change the law in order for them to force an officer to speak to criminal investigators after a shooting. I've done the research. What law are they talking about? And I said, well, they're talking about the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. So that's the degree to which they want to change the law, all for the purpose of prosecuting an officer. And a lot of times because the shooting didn't look good on video. Now, there's no nice way to do a leg sweep on somebody on video. There's no nice way to hit somebody with an aspaton. So these knee-jerk reactions that people have requires officers to have some sort of a shield to protect them and never mind the fact that we have police chiefs and some sheriffs who have just become activists. I, you know, and I I spoke recently, if you're a law enforcement executive and you are not a law enforcement advocate, please do everybody a favor, write a resignation this afternoon and get out of the profession.
0: That's, that's outstanding because we see a lot of that, a lot of weak police leadership that causes the issues for our profession very often that we see now, including, you know, we've got this huge rise in officer ambushes. And one of the frustrations at the National Police Association that we have is officers are being attacked because of the false narrative that we are somehow a danger to the community. And we have weak leadership that refuses to stand up for their officers. Just what you just said.
1: Well, think about this for a second. Imagine the corporate world you are hired as the CEO of a Fortune 100 company. And in the first board meeting, you say, you know, look, I really don't believe in the profession. I don't believe what we do here. I I really think that we need to fundamentally change everything about this entire corporation. The door would hit you so hard on the way out, you'd be speeding when you hit the next shoreline. Why do we tolerate that in our profession?
0: Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about officers and their their rights, including their constitutional rights, um, there is also a lot of talk about getting rid of qualified immunity. And I don't think most people really understand what that means. I, I, when I talk to people who are not in the profession, they say, well, you know, this protects officers and lets them just run amok. Can you explain qualified immunity?
1: Sure. And first of all, for all the law enforcement officers listening to, to this and watching, uh, if they're watching, I'm sorry they're having to look at me, but if they're listening, this is good information. So the first thing you need to understand is the qualified immunity is fine. It was just supported and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court. It's in great shape. It's going to Disney World for the summer with its kids. It's fine. It's not going anywhere. There's certain states that have tried to regulate it, and there is an incredible amount of ignorance, even by at least one law enforcement organization head, saying that officers are getting away with murder. So let's break this down. If you're going to apply for qualified immunity, number one, you have to be acting in the course and scope of your employment. That means if you commit a crime, you can't get qualified immunity. So officers are not getting away with murder, when they get qualified immunity. If you commit a crime, it's outside the course and scope of your employment, you can't get it. The second thing you have to show is that you are complying with clearly established law. And the Supreme Court has wrestled with that over the past few years. One of the cases recently was White versus Pauly, P-A-U-L-Y. And what the courts wrestled with that was the whole concept of the clearly established law is what puts officers on notice that their conduct was appropriate or not appropriate. So we don't expect officers to spend their off hours in a law library, but we do understand that they have to be kept abreast of what's going on by their agency. They have an independent obligation to work with each other and get advanced training. This is why we started the Blue Line Lawyer Institute, to have a a think tank to raise that level of awareness and education. And if you are acting in the course of scope of your employment and you did not break the law, and you are acting according to clearly established law, there is a recognition stemming a lot from Graham versus Connor, the embodiment of that, that officers have to make judgment calls. So the last part of qualified immunity, it has to be a discretionary act. It can't be an act that you have no discretion about. So um, administering first aid to somebody or, or calling for an ambulance, or qualify or, or um, examining someone before they enter a jail to make sure that their medical needs are met. Those are ministerial tasks. So it has to be a discretionary act. And the discretionary acts of law enforcement, like most public officials, are made under circumstances where they don't have a lot of time to make decisions. So, as Graham versus Connor stated, rapidly evolving, tense, and uncertain circumstances where minute amounts of time are compressed for an officer to make a decision. And it's a recognition that if you are putting yourself in that position, if the government has placed you in that position, if the public has called 911 for you to solve a problem, if you exercise your discretion appropriately, we are not going to hold you civilly liable. That's a nutshell of qualified immunity. And I don't see anybody with any rational basis wanting that to go away.
0: That's an excellent explanation. And, and you are, you're such a good teacher and, and you go out there, you know, at the Blue Line Lawyer Institute, you guys, you do a lot of training. Talk about your training and tell folks what you do.
1: So we have a training class that's coming up August 17th to 19th. I think it'll be before, uh, before your, this program airs, but um, it is in Atlanta and we have people registered from several states now. In the bottom line with our training, and I've been doing this for years, our training is designed, number one, to empower the people that are on the road. They hear enough naysaying. We need good people in law enforcement. And I know you have a lot of civilians who watch your show. People say, what can we do? Go out and recruit somebody to work in law enforcement. Find the best and the brightest in your community and say, please join the police force. Apply for the sheriff's office. That's how we get the best and the brightest because the one or two or five recruiters in your agency can't do it all. And what we try to do after we empower them is give them knowledge that they wouldn't get someplace else. And then another big part that we do at the firm is act as a spokesperson. I do a lot of interviews. Um, You know, for instance, you mentioned the ambushes. The ambushes in 2021 were up 115 percent, 115 percent where officers were being attacked just for wearing the uniform. That is unacceptable in a free society.
0: Absolutely. Lance, how did law enforcement, or policing, I should say, get so politicized? What happened? Money?
1: I'd love to give you some other explanation and there are people who tell you it's social transit has to do with money. There are people that have been raising money by criticizing law enforcement, a lot of money by criticizing law enforcement. Um, If you look over the past 10 or 15 years, salaries and the amount of money put to training has not kept pace. People complaining about defunding the police, just to give you an idea of how utterly idiotic that is. This is what happens when you don't have a chain of command. I will tell you that it's utterly idiotic. The people who want to advance law enforcement and defund law enforcement at the same time are so naive. The only discretionary parts of a police budget are travel and training. And usually the travel is to go to good training classes. So if you cut back the amount of funding to a police department, you actually reduce the amount of training they will get. So you will have people on the street who are less trained. And I think that's it's a matter of resources. And, and just as an example, um, people saying, well, we want to defund police so we can uh, increase funding for mental health counselors and, and, and responders. Nothing prevented those people from doing this 30 years ago. There's a reason law enforcement responds to mental health calls and the reason they've taken training like CIT and developed programs to be better at it because no one else is doing it. And underlying, make no mistake, underlying some of these defund the police movements and some of these anti-police rhetoric that you hear is a goal to abolish the police. and some cases, just to disarm the police. And now it's interesting because nipping around the edges, you'll start to hear some of those people actually come out and say what they want, that they really want to abolish law enforcement. And the bottom line is, You know, the the much maligned blue line is actually supposed to symbolize a line between anarchy and order. And if you do away with law enforcement, if you disarm the populace, if you prevent people from protecting themselves, the predators, and they are absolute predators in our society, will not stop and people will be completely defenseless.
0: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Lance, where can people get the books? Where where can they find out more about you and the Institute and your training and, and everything that you're involved in?
1: Oh, great. Well, by the time this airs, the Blue Line Lawyer Institute website will be up, and it'll be bluelinelawyerinstitute.com. And then LanceLarussoBooks.com. I actually wrote a fiction book that you can get at huntingofmen.com. It's a novel. It's my first novel. And uh, it's uh, it's people I've told people, if you want to read about the alcoholic um, homicide detective with seven ex-wives who hates everybody, go read somebody else's book. If you want to know a book about how cops actually solve crimes. People have really raved about uh, hunting of men. All the books are available on Amazon or at LanceLorussoBooks.com.
0: Lance, thanks so much for spending time with us, being my first repeat guest. And if you want more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down!
1: Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation.
0: Put the knife on the ground.
1: In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been
0: resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.